Welcome to Late Kick is Live. It is Sunday night, March 7th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Jam-packed full details coming up momentarily before I even get into our first topic tonight. On tomorrow night's special, we've been given a name. It's really cool. I'll give it to you in just a second. We are jam-packed, though, when it comes to college football tonight. We are talking about the Tennessee Mood Tracker, kind of going in reverse order here. I'm going to give you a lot of names to watch that have already come out of the transfer portal. Some are still there. We don't know where they're going to go. Henry Toa Toa comes to mind. But I'm going to discuss guys who we already know a landing spot for. These are guys that probably, you know, a Vegas odds maker would assign anywhere from half a point to two points of value on, but yet any given game, you know our philosophy on this, you cannot quantify the point impact, the overall numerical impact that a guy's going to have on one game. The guys I'm going to talk about tonight can actually change the outcomes of games. So I'm going to talk about that before we go off the air. We have got a wide-ranging G5, Power 5, quote-unquote, debate, discussion. So I think a lot of it has been very mischaracterized. I found out this week from a couple of you, my own thoughts on this have been mischaracterized. So I want to use tonight, right here in early to mid-March, to sort of reset the table on where I stand on this. You can decide where you stand on it, and we will discuss. Also, I got some questions about various uh, programs around the SEC. I'm going to do this for a couple of different conferences. We're going to start the SEC tonight. Just some spring questions, but before we get to that, okay, here are the details. I promised you to lead the show. We are going to have tomorrow night our first ever Late Kick Show Owners Association special. We do this every time I top another 1,000 followers on Twitter. It sounds very self-absorbed, and that's because it is. But I at least like to reward you when I do hit those benchmarks. And so when we pass 13K, I told you I got something coming up. This is it. A lot of you entered your name into the lottery last week. I gave you multiple chances. Don't worry. If you didn't get your name in, you will be given plenty more opportunities as we hit those future benchmarks. But here's what's happening. Tomorrow night at 7 Eastern, 6 Central, we're going to record this. If you entered your name into the lottery, the moment we go off the air tonight, producer Jordan, who runs our podcast for Late Kick, he will send out an email. You will find out at that point, it's kind of like in the movie Deep Impact, you find out if you've got a slot to survive the asteroid or not. Not quite as consequential tonight, but you will find out if you get a shot, or get a slot rather, on this special. So tomorrow night, if you get the email, you'll get a Zoom invite. You will come, we will record it. Producer or director Colin will then dress it up for video, and we will debut that Wednesday on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Producer Jordan on the podcast side of things will also dress it up, and we will debut it Wednesday on the podcast. So you'll get to listen to it or watch it wherever you are. This won't be a live product, but it's going to be by far the most interactive and I think the most fun thing that we've ever done so far on the show. We got a lot of these ideas. We just have to, you know, have some time, have some experience under our belt, get a little traction before we can put them in motion. But again, looking forward to that. Watch your email inboxes because you will get a link sent to you and a description for the way this is going to work as soon as we go off the air tonight. And if you want to get in on future shows, got to get us to 14K, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter. Now, before we get started tonight, a lot of you have been everywhere from the iJosh to the Twitter DMs to the email inbox asking me if I'm going to talk about Rush Probst tonight. Yeah, I'll talk about Rush Probst for two seconds. Jesse, you don't even know about this, so don't worry about putting anything up graphically. It won't take long. I just want to read you an excerpt. So here's the backstory. There is some very, very sketch linked video today on Twitter, let me just put it mildly, uh, that purports to have Rush Probst vocalizing various allegations and details of recruiting improprieties all around the Southeast. Now, I am not going to invalidate or validate the specifics of what Rush Probst said, uh, because 
Normally, I like to have a nice rule on this show where we wait about 24 hours to allow these things to marinate and simmer, find out what's real, what's not, blah, blah, blah. However, as I tweeted out earlier, here's what I do look forward to. I look forward to watching a bunch of people who have thrown Rush Probst and his character, rightfully so, under the bus for the better part of the last decade and a half, all of a sudden treating this man as the golden calf of credibility and everything that comes out of his mouth is pure as the driven snow because now he just happens to be saying something that some of us want to be true. Let me lick my finger as I turn the digital page on my laptop. This is from a piece on ESPN.com. I think it's one of the best things they've ever put out. It is called The Confessions of Rush Probst. Rush Probst, once upon a time, spilled his guts to ESPN. And this is a guy who, if you're from the Southeast or you're tied in on the high school recruiting scene, you know all about. If you had MTV in the mid-2000s, you know all about him. If you don't, let me just sum up how things started to quickly snowball downhill. He was at Hoover, which is in Birmingham, big powerhouse there, and he was winning state championships. Nick Saban comes, and he takes over at Alabama. And Nick Saban has Rush Probst in there for an interview. I'm going to pick it up here and read the last part of this paragraph, and this will give you a little inkling into, um, I don't know, the credibility or lack thereof to apply to Rush Probst's name. On the drive home, Probst called his girlfriend. He nailed it, he told her. The dream would soon be a reality. Keep in mind, he just interviewed for a job at Alabama. A few minutes later, Nick Saban called. Instead of a job offer, he had a question about Probst's girlfriend. Probst, you see, was married to another woman with whom he had three children. Yet there were whispers he was leading a double life. Two women, two sets of kids, one football coach. Somehow the rumors had spread all the way to the Alabama football office, and Saban wanted to know, was it true? Quote, following from Rush Probst. I couldn't lie, Probst says now, some six years later. I told him it was. It was all true. I knew it was. He pauses. Man, that was tough as... Good cut there, Jesse. So as we are, again, propping up Rush Probst as a bastion of uh, integrity over the next 24 hours, let's just remember who we're propping up. I'm going to wait back, and I'm going to watch the rest of you rush in, and no pun intended, and we'll talk about this probably later in the week. As for tonight's show, let's dive in, shall we? I was looking at the inbox last week, and I was trying, uh, based on a couple of your efforts, to be sucked into a G5 Power 5 debate. So I wanted to frame this up like this. The whole G5 Power 5 debate, what does it consist of? Because I think it's gotten a lot of minutia thrown in, and like it's, it's so nebulous. The G5 Power 5 debate, what are we even talking about? So what is it? I'm asking you, actually, as I sort of, in a roundabout way, state what it is to me. What is the G5 Power 5 debate? The answer is, there isn't an easy answer, because there are so many layers to this. It's very complex. Uh, very rarely are these sorts of overarching, broad, debatable issues in college football summed up in one sentence. So tonight, I realized, because I was going back and forth with a couple of people this last week, I don't even think my ideas on this have really been properly characterized. Maybe I've done a poor job of it. So, hey, luckily, they give me shows every week to where I can correct any kind of mischaracterizations. But I want you to just identify your own stance, and I want you to think along with me as we go through this. What is your stance? When I just throw out this intentionally very broad statement of G5 versus Power 5, does it mean anything to you? If it does mean something to you, and judging by my inbox and interactions, most of you have some thought on this, what does it mean to you? So here's what I got drawn into. I was drawn into a debate between two people, it was on Twitter, and you guys were debating back and forth about Power 5, G5, and so someone was trashing G5 collectively, not even on a specific lane, just trashing G5 teams as being lesser than across the board. And so they thought I was going to agree with them. Well, I don't agree with that. 
And so I had to burst someone's bubble. But then I realized, wait a second, why did this person even think I was going to agree with that? And then it occurred to me that maybe there's a little bit of a stereotype about me when it comes to G5 programs that's not necessarily true. But the reason it's probably a semi-widely held stereotype about me is because I've given you some reason to think that. And I know where it came from. It came from my statements about the playoff in years past. So here's what I have done in the past. I have taken a principled stance, not against any one team, but against collectively G5 programs making the college football playoff. It's never had anything to do with the quality of a given team. It's always been about what I believe to be, or should be rather, a prerequisite on the minimum baseline strength of schedule you should have to play to make the playoff. So even if you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, if you don't play a strong enough schedule, I don't think you should belong in the college football playoff, even though obviously you'd be good enough. So it's never been about the quality of team. But now that we get there, it's like a domino effect. And once you state that one thing about G5, then people think, oh, you just think G5 programs suck. You think they're inferior. You think they should never belong in the same sentence. No, that's not what I think at all. So here is very commonly what is talked about when it's, it's this whole P5, G5 thing. Group of five programs and fans of those programs, um, they think that they are not given a fair shot at the table. They think that if they were to only be given a chance, you know, the best team in any given year, if they were to be given a chance, if it's Central Florida or Memphis or Boise back in the day, in the college football playoff, that they would make good on that. And they would then prove the world, prove to the world rather that they belong. Okay, that's never been my stance because I've never doubted that they could win in a one-game scenario. My, my whole beef, again, has been... What kind of challenge did you have to overcome to get there? So I'm kind of detached from the way a lot of people think on that. But as for the Power 5 train of thought, a lot of it is, just like I said, you guys don't play a tough enough schedule. You know, I got Texas A&M over here playing more top 20 programs in the span of a month than you may play in five years. Like, don't come to me with this. And so, like, I get both sides of the equation. But there are layers, and as a result of those layers, it's a very complex situation. So I just wanted to state some stuff that I believe. And you can let me know because I tend to believe some of you are going to have agreement and disagreement with me on some of these points. So here's what is not new, this entire debate. Sometimes it's characterized as something that is a product of the college football playoff era. It's not a product of the college football playoff era. I was thinking today about my earliest recollection of this debate, this loose debate in college football of someone playing a perceived inferior schedule in a lesser conference and how do we draw that team in and the quality of that team, how do we interpret it against the backdrop of major programs from the Big Ten and the SEC. And I took myself all the way back to 2003. It was one of the first college football games I ever went to in person. And that was North Carolina at Georgia Tech. Shout out Reggie Ball. And uh, Tech won that day. That's inconsequential. But on the way home, uh, the people I went with, we were listening to the radio, and you know, scores are coming in from around the country, and TCU was making a run that year. TCU was ranked somewhere between 10 and 15 at the time. This was the year that we were going to have a split national championship. It was going to be LSU winning the BCS title. Um, USC was in the mix. Oklahoma played for the BCS title. And so anyway... Uh, there was a push by some people to interject TCU because they were undefeated into that conversation. And I remember, I haven't even graduated high school at this point, and I remember already having a big conflict with that. Just ideologically, I had a big conflict with who I was watching LSU play and who I was watching Oklahoma play and then who I was watching TCU play. At the time, I think they were in the Mountain West. And so they weren't in a Power Five, quote-unquote Power Five conference yet. 
And so I remember having a debate with the person who was driving the vehicle that was taking us home, and I said, they shouldn't be involved in this conversation. And, and then he said, why not? All they can play is the schedule that they're presented, and they've beaten everyone on the schedule. That's all you can do. So even back then, that debate was prevalent. And before that, that was my first recollection of it. But I just wanted to go down some, some, some notes on here, and, and I wanted to tell you where I kind of ping-pong around on this stuff. I have always been against, as I said before, G5 programs making the college football playoff. Again, I'm not going to rehash this much more. has nothing to do with quality of team. has everything to do with lack of quality of schedule, by and large. I think there's a lot of double standards out there, too. You know, for instance, like if I were to take Arkansas, um, you know, like last year, Arkansas would have probably been power rated in the, I don't know, 30 to 40 range. Let's just say 30 to 40 range on a Vegas power rating scale. If I were to have Cincinnati play Arkansas last year, if they were to have gone in Fayetteville and they were to have beaten Arkansas, it would be a crown jewel of their resume. And it would be treated as such. And it would be framed as Cincinnati went into an SEC West team's backyard and beat them, knowing full well that Texas A&M is going to play Arkansas. And if they beat Arkansas, which they did, you won't remember the game two weeks later. You certainly won't use it as a resume booster for Texas A&M. And that's called a double standard when it comes to scheduling. So I've always had an issue with that. Again, it's not anything against any specific team. It's just a general principle. Number two, here's where I start to differ, even with some of the folks in the group there that I agree with. I'm not this big believer of P5 is greater than G5, period, end of sentence. There's heavy overlap. The top of G5 has heavy overlap. And I'm not just talking about... Well, you know, the best two or three teams at the G5 level are probably better than the number 128, number 129. No, the best teams at the G5 level are top 20 programs, top 20, top 15 teams any given year comfortably, maybe better than that. I've never debated that and never will debate that. Uh, Side note, I think one of the biggest battles that you could start to see, especially from the Atlantic Athletic Conference, American Athletic Conference's point of view, the AAC moving forward, is... That perception that they are the best of the G5, and then that means that the worst of the P5 is still automatically a rung up on the ladder. I don't know that that's true. I've told you before, and I will reiterate, I could strongly make the argument. If we were in debate class and you told me I had to take this argument, I could strongly make the argument that the top, or just the AAC in general, is better top to bottom than the Pac-12 right now. That's the battle they should be fighting. That's the battle you guys should be fighting. TV. TV contracts have had a massive impact on this. I think the most glaring example that I remember in recent memory is from last year, week one. Louisiana goes into Iowa State, and they beat Iowa State. They beat them soundly. They were the better team. They looked better. Their roster looked better. And so everyone looked at that, and they said, wait a minute. This wasn't some also-ran. Like, Coastal Carolina beat Kansas, but, I mean, Kansas is horrible. Iowa State ended up winning the Fiesta Bowl. Iowa State was in the Big 12 championship game. And yet, a team from down south in the G5 ranks comes up there and beats them. How did that happen? And it wasn't flukish. Nothing felt flukish about it. They dominated. I mean, they owned the game. They looked better. Their roster looked superior. How did that happen? Well, the way it happened is because their roster was superior. Your eyes didn't play tricks on you. So how could that be? How could it be that a G5 program in Louisiana goes to play the eventual Fiesta Bowl champion in the Big 12 and not only do they pull off a, an upset, they, they pull off an upset that doesn't even really look like it was an upset, as it turns out. Well, they got really good players on the roster. That's how. They got players in the roster now they never would have had 30 years ago. 30 years ago, if I am from, let's say, Bossier City, Louisiana, 
and I am a three-star receiver, and I've got offers, let's use these two programs from Iowa State and Louisiana. Well, I know that chances are there are very few opportunities for me to go on national TV at Louisiana back in the day. Today, the Sun Belt and the American and Conference, they all have national TV deals. All your games are on TV. Every one of your family members can find you virtually every Saturday. You get multiple opportunities to play on national TV. And so now that that scale is balanced out. And now that basically you having to get yourself in front of the appropriate eyeballs is no longer something that you have to play for a major team to do. Well, all is equal. I want to stay home. And a lot of kids in the South now choose to stay home. And guess where Central Florida is located? Guess where Louisiana is located? And Memphis and Houston. Guess where these programs are located? So they're just really beneficiaries right now and moving forward of the natural changes in Tennessee within the TV contract world that is bled down to what a roster looks like of the G5 level. And also, as I said, to wrap this up, the next perceptional battle is not, okay, well, how can we, how can we get power six to trend? How can we get that idea to trend? You don't. You can talk about it all you want to. You can hashtag it all you want to. No one cares about that. Really, when, when brass tacks come around, no one cares about that. What you should do is you should invest a lot more time saying, hey, keep your power five moniker. And I don't care who's got a TV deal with who. And I don't care what kind of representation you have at a table versus us. Look at our quality of product and look at the Pac-12. Forget just the top. Who's better, the sixth best team in the Pac-12 or the sixth best team in the American Athletic Conference? That's the conversation I'd be having right now. And if you think, let's put my principal stance to the test here. If you just think that this is a G5 thing, I would invite you to think again, because I'll tell you right now, it is March 7th. I'll tell you right now, you can take the Clemson Tigers schedule this upcoming year. If they don't beat Georgia in week one, I got to see how the season plays out, obviously because unforeseen things can happen. Teams that I don't expect to be good could be good. But if it were to play out on paper like we would expect it to, there's a distinct possibility that I could be sitting at this desk come December. If Clemson loses week one, their schedule, to my eyeballs, does not rise to the level of meeting that minimum baseline requirement. What I'm telling you is I could find myself making the exact same argument against Clemson making the playoff as I am right now about G5 programs making the playoff. I don't care. It's all about the standard, the schedule standard being met. And if you don't meet it, you don't meet it. That week one game, like Georgia can lose that game and still make the playoff. They'll have plenty of other chances. Clemson, for all we know, if the ACC doesn't collectively rise to the level it needs to, Clemson will probably still make it. Let's be real with each other. But it could be over my protest. Let me at least say that. So all I can control is what I think. So that's just... That gives you an idea of how many layers there are to this whole G5, Power 5 thing. It's not as simple as, oh, who's better and who's worse. That's not the way, at least in my mind, that's not the way this works. All right, let's move on because i got several more things I want to get to here. So spring football has arrived in some places. It's about to arrive in other places. I want to work my way around several conferences. I'm going to start with the SEC tonight. Some big spring questions. There is this fine balance in spring. I talk about this all the time, sort of in the summer, what I call preview magazine season, leading up to the start of the regular season. And it's when you start filling out sort of your mental bank of information. Uh, Spring football is really when we start to do it around here. And so, you know, you start to learn the rosters. You start to learn some notable names, who transferred where, who declared for the draft, some depth chart stuff. Yeah, you start to formulate all that in your mind. What I want you to be careful of, again, we're all about sounding very, very smart around the water cooler. And eventually, 
maybe if you're about this sort of thing, winning some money on this in the fall, you got to be careful not to marry yourself to any of these opinions. That's why we don't throw out big, broad opinions in the spring or, or really even SEC media day or Big Ten media day season in the summer. There's, there's nothing with which to be strongly opinionated on quite yet. You get into fall camp, you start getting whispers from people on the ground. Well, then our tone changes around here a little bit. So be careful. I'm about to talk about a bunch of programs right now. You just got to be careful. Just take it, filter it properly, and put it in the back of your mind. Don't start making your preseason projections in the middle of March. At Georgia, let's start there. Going to be a lot of talk, as there should be, about JT Daniels, about the quarterback situation. I'm watching that, too, very intently. Let's not overthink the room here. That's going to ultimately decide whether Georgia wins the SEC East this year or not. There's going to be plenty of focus there. I will just tell you, because of the next facet of Georgia's team that I'm about to talk about, I don't doubt for a second that this year, this 2021 season, will be the strongest that Kirby Smart will have ever been predisposed to lighting a match under his offense. Part of that reason is because he probably thinks he's got the personnel to do it now, whereas he may not have felt totally comfortable with that in the past. Let me tell you the other part, though. I'm looking at a list here of experienced corners that Georgia has. The list is blank. There are none. There are some talented guys here. But with Tyreek Stevenson transferring out, who we're going to talk about later in the show, I'm looking at Keely Ringo, big-time name, no experience. Amir Speed, Nylon Green, Jalen Kemper, all these were big-time names. You're not on the field for Georgia if you weren't an elite recruit. None of them have any experience. And so what I'm looking at is I'm watching Georgia this fall, and I'm watching them play teams like Clemson. And I'm watching them obviously go through conference play in the SEC. And I am, uh, you know, I'm kind of rubbing the Magic 8 ball right now, and I'm seeing some teams able to throw on them. And I'm seeing them potentially struggle to get off the field some on third down. You're going to have to be able to score. Kirby Smart knows this. This is not something that's going to occur to him in like week three of the season. They know it right now. So you got a confluence of a couple of events. Number one, this should be, you know, when they decided to crank it up a little bit offensively anyway. Finally got the quarterback they need, got a lot of receiver talent. But the second part is it's going to have to be done by necessity. They're going to have to score, probably going to have to score a little bit more than they're used to. Let's go and hop on I-20 and head west about mm, three or four hours, and let's go to Tuscaloosa. Wide receiver and offensive line is what we here are paying very, very close attention to with Alabama. I want you to imagine something, because you can't imagine this with any other team. There's no other program out there, don't care who it is, where you're changing quarterbacks and you're losing guys like uh, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, Najee Harris, Mac Jones, not to mention multiple starters on the offensive line and replacing an offensive coordinator and yet still looking at that team and saying, yeah, but I'll probably start them number one in the country anyway. Yeah, they'll still be the preseason favorite and the best conference in America anyway. It's kind of second nature now with Alabama. It's, it's amazing uh, the, the thoroughness with which that machine operates now to where you can just kind of think like that and you're not even alone thinking that way. So they'll still be the assumed number one here. John Mechie is a guy who they're going to obviously look to to kind of step up because now over the span of two years, forget just one year, over two years now, yeah, you've seen Jalen Waddle leave. You've seen Devontae Smith leave. You've also seen Ruggs, and you've seen uh, Jerry Judy leave. Like, that's a lot of talent that's headed out here over the span of 24 months. And you've now said goodbye to Mac Jones. So there's not a lot of doubt in Tuscaloosa about whether Bryce Young can get the job done. I don't think there's nearly as much um, debate, let's say, in the quarterback competition as will be manufactured over the offseason. It's Bryce Young's job. Like, there'll, there'll be a lot of dust created over the summer. It's going to be Bryce Young's job, barring injury, of course. But some of these names, like Bama, know, Bama players and fans, they know the names like Xavier Williams, uh, Ty Jones-Bell, 
Uh, I was really looking forward to Javon Baker last year. Didn't get on the field quite as much as we thought he would. But then they got all these newcomers coming in. Three of these dudes, the ones I'm about to mention, they're on campus for spring ball. Ja'Cory Brooks, Aggie A. Hall, Christian Leary, they're all on campus this spring. So the part A there is how many of those guys who have waited their turn are ready to like be legitimate studs, which is what you have to be to play wide receiver for Alabama, or how many of these new guys are immediately ready to jump into starting jobs? But I say all that with the backdrop being offensive line, which is also just kind of assumed at Alabama right now. But they lost Deontay Brown, they lost Landon Dickerson, and they lost Alex Leatherwood. They just landed the top two tackles in the country. That's good. They may need them. They've got really good depth there. That's good. Thus far, it's unproven. Again, these are questions we've learned not to really ask or worry about a whole lot about when it comes to Alabama, but that's what God created spring football for. At Auburn, Bo Nix. Bo Nix. When I say that, what comes to mind? Probably an overthrow by about 12 yards, probably terrible footwork, probably third and 17. That's probably what comes to mind when I say Bo Nix right now. It's been such a strange career because I'm still adamant that Bo Nix, if Lincoln Riley, just to pick a name out of the air that's good at developing quarterbacks, if Lincoln Riley were to have come into Alabama and recruited Bo Nix and landed him, I think Bo Nix would be a star quarterback at Oklahoma. Because in terms of physical traits, I think he's got everything you need. I think he went into a terrible situation, a a horribly ill-equipped program at that point under Gus Malzahn to develop his skill set. And so now... Physically, like his game has been a mess. It's been totally inconsistent. Mentally, he's been totally inconsistent. And so now the big question with him is how much do you have to deprogram him? How much do you have to rewire him? Because if he was a true freshman, it'd be one thing. Like I think Harson and Bobo would probably almost rather inherit true freshman Bo Nix because, yeah, he'd be a, a, a lump of Play-Doh, but at least you could start to mold it immediately. Right now you've got to demold it from what it has been and then go to work on remolding it. And they lose Seth Williams, they lose Schwartz, they lose Eli Stove there. So a lot of the dependable factors that he had out wide to lean on, they're gone. Tank's, I mean, Tank Bigsby's back in the backfield. But I wonder over the course of spring, and they'll start to get a feel for it as a coaching staff too, like what are they really dealing with with Bo Nix? Is this a guy who you can just take one brush of the eraser and wipe the slate clean? Or is it something where when you get to the end of spring, you're only just scratching the surface of kind of getting him set mentally? And at that point, I mean, like, you don't have a whole lot of time left. You're going to have some off-season stuff you can't really legally participate in. And then you got fall camp. And at that point, you got to be installing. Like, you got to be ready to play games by then. How about LSU? I wrote defense. Not even one position. Not even one person. I'm just watching defense for LSU. I'll first be watching what impact there is when guys on defense finally have a coordinator they actually, I don't know, want to play for. That's always nice to have in your back pocket. So Durante Jones is the new DC there, for those of you unfamiliar. He's come in. He replaces Bo Pelini. There is a theory on returning starters out there, a couple of them actually. Some people love returning starters as this blanket stat, and they don't really care what the production was the year before. Other folks like to have a bunch of returning starters if they're coming back from a team that was good. If the team was terrible, they'd just rather hit the flush button and then start over. Well, at LSU, we don't have either of those categories. We have a bunch of guys coming back from a unit that was terrible last year. So you can take a couple of schools of thought. If you're an LSU fan or you're just going to watch LSU, you could think that a lot of that was a byproduct of uh, second time we've used this word tonight, a confluence of horrible events up to and including hiring Bo Pelini last year, and then they're just going to be a lot better this year, fresh start, etc. Or you could say, hmm, got a lot of guys coming back, not so sure I am uh, 
buying in yet. Remains to be seen for me. I can tell you they're ultra excited down there, but then again, I don't know how much to believe in that because this was the same program whose head coach told me last year that we have upgraded defensively. Well, they hadn't. So yeah, you got a lot of guys who were at one time big deals on the recruiting trail. It was a win when LSU landed all these guys. They don't lose very much at all. They got a lot of guys coming back. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a neck up thing. Hopefully it is. I don't think they can get worse. There were some statistical categories, LSU, important statistical categories. They were in the hundreds in, which is inexcusable, obviously. And last but not least, staying in the SEC West here, I go to College Station and I look at Texas A&M and all the questions are going to be about quarterback. Kellen Mond's been there for like a decade. He's gone. So Haynes King is going to be the presumed starter. That is something I agree with. However, that probably won't be where most of my focus is for the spring because I'm looking at their offensive line, which was to me, I said at the end of last season, probably the most anonymous great unit in America was Texas A&M's offensive line. They just did their job. In fact, if you were to go back to 2019, I wrote it down somewhere. 2019, yeah. So they had 34 sacks given up in 2019. They gave up seven last year. Just quantum leap of improvement. Well, now they lose four out of those five guys. So we come back to that familiar conundrum. Returning starters, how much do they matter? Well, you're losing a bunch of starters off a really good unit here. So for all the talk, validly so, that will be put out there over the offseason about Haynes King, man, keep a close eye on those practice reports out of College Station about this offensive line. Because that ultimately is going to determine probably the difference between what Haynes King even has a shot to do this year. And, and as uh, default, what Texas A&M has a shot to do. We're going to do that about a bunch of conferences. That was just some kind of hop, skip, and a jump around the SEC tonight. Uh, spring football is a great time of year. Transfers are going to play a big role in this. A lot of you have been talking my ear off about the transfer portal. It has been one of the most consistently high-performing search terms on 247sports.com. Anytime we've put out a transfer portal video, it's done great numbers on the YouTube channel. So uh, you stack the channel. You stacked the show. We're talking about them again. I want to get a little bit deeper, though, and be a little more specific tonight. Several impact transfers that are going to matter not only in spring, but obviously this upcoming season. We are emphasizing this big time, I think for obvious reasons, but there is a, a distinction I want to make here, and this is going to be a theme all throughout the season. If you're a first-time viewer of the show, as Jesse shows you a lot of the key transfers for the upcoming season, there is a distinction between true value and odds maker value. So I'm looking at this list right now. Let's take Demarcus Bowman, running back, transferred from Clemson to Florida. He's the first guy I'm going to cover anyway. So Demarcus Bowman, if I were to ask an odds maker, how many points is Demarcus Bowman worth? They wouldn't even tell you he's worth one point in a game. But yet Demarcus Bowman in any given game could be worth 10 to 14 points. He could impact a game in that manner is what I'm saying. An odds maker would never assign him 7 to 10 points of value, but he could be worth that in a given game. And the reason I bring that up is because that's why these transfers are so important. There could be given games this fall where one or multiple of the names on that list you just saw actually determine the outcome. Change a W or a loss to a W or a W to a loss because you lost that guy. Transfer portal giveth transfer portal take it away. So DeMarcus Bowman is the first name I want to touch on. Florida's got a pretty loaded running back room. Like if you just look at it on paper, uh, and, and they need it by the way, they shift to Emory Jones as their quarterback this year. He himself is a threat with his legs. But if you look at their running back room, you may think for a second, oh, I see Pierce. I see Davis there. I see Wright. And now we're adding DeMarcus Bowman. Where are all these carries going to come from? Number one, never worry 
about having too many riches at any position, much less running back. Number two, Dan Mullins already talked about this at some points this spring, talking about a lot more maybe two-back sets this fall, which is to be expected because you do not have Kyle Trask anymore. You do not have guys like Kyle Pitts on the field anymore, Kadarius Toney, guys you never wanted to take off the field. Well, now it'll be a different-looking offense this year, probably one familiar if you've watched Dan Mullen for a long time. But Demarcus Bowman, when you talk about skill set, like overall package, could have the best out of anybody in that running back room. But at the very least, you need the depth at running back because of the slightly different style of offense they'll run this year. So keep an eye on Demarcus Bowman, which you already were going to. He was our number two rated transfer per the 24-7 Sports Transfer Portal rankings. Mackenzie Milton, probably the most fascinating name on this list. You remember him a couple of years ago. He was the quarterback at Central Florida. Got the injury. Uh, He was kind of glossed over because he's rehabbing. So he's kind of out of sight, out of mind. I hate that it has to be that way, but it was. So as Dylan Gabriel stepped in, Mackenzie Milton goes in the transfer portal. He lands at Florida State. And so you always have that thing in the back of your mind. Anytime a guy's been injured, you have that thing where damaged goods, man, I, I don't know. Yeah, the name I remember, but when I look at the player, am I going to remember the player? Well, I've listened really close to Mike Norvell and some people out of Florida State when they've talked about him. And uh, granted, Norvell's pretty new there, so you, you don't learn how to interpret a coach's coach speak, let's say, until he's a few years in. I didn't listen to Mike Norvell a whole lot at Memphis, just to be honest with you. So we'll see. Take it with a grain of salt. But here's the good news. Mackenzie Milton has been fully cleared for spring. They are emphatic in their insistence, they being Florida State, they are emphatic in their insistence that he's good to go, he's full speed, he can do everything that he previously could do. Now, Obviously, I have some natural skepticism in my mind just because I've watched this game for so long and I've watched guys try and come back from injuries. But I will say this. If Florida State is being authentic and genuine and they're correct about what they're saying out of Tallahassee about the status of Mackenzie Milton and it's still spring, like we're not going to have to wait until later in the year to even see if he can get cleared. If all that's on the up and up, this could be the one you circle as being the biggest story of 2021. Because if he is like what he used to be, if he's that product, he's going to make an immediate impact on the field for Florida State. I don't care who else you have on the quarterback depth chart. Mackenzie Milton, in his old form, is as good as anyone they'd have there. And so that could, in turn, be something that sparks Florida State. Just something to watch. How about Wondell Robinson? Uh, Wondell Robinson, so we've got him ranked as the top receiver in the transfer portal. Wondell Robinson was Nebraska's best offensive player. Uh, before he decided to transfer and come closer to home. Uh, This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen in the portal. Like if you just geographically happen to be positioned in the right place like Kentucky is, Wondell Robinson decides, I want to go closer to home. I'm a wildcat. And this is very big. So not only do you just take a team's best offensive player, that's my opinion, by the way. It's not that we had him rated there necessarily. But number two, remember, they're installing everything new offensively at Kentucky. Kentucky, Missouri and Kentucky, are not typically programs that are talked about a whole lot. In fact, I didn't even touch on them in the SEC spring segment we just did. Kentucky and Missouri, both fascinating for different reasons, but Kentucky's, you're installing a new offense here. And so, yeah, like we got to figure out quarterback. Joey Gatewood or who who else is going to be a quarterback there? Got to figure all that out, but it sure does help when you have these role players and you're not going to ask a quarterback to just, well, you got to shoulder the load. Whoever we pick, got to shoulder the load. Wondell Robinson's a difference maker. Wondell Robinson in... uh, in a program that tends to play a lot of close games, that could be a guy who is the difference between six and six and eight and four, seven and five, nine and three. You just never know how that's going to happen. Eric Gray is another one that really fits that description. And this is, 
boy, that 2019 to 2020 stretch, Eric Gray's a really good football player. Running back, headed from Tennessee to Oklahoma. There's no way Lincoln Riley could have planned this. You just got to leave yourself some flexibility so that you can be the beneficiary if this does happen to fall in your lap, just like the next guy we're going to talk about. Also, Oklahoma, the beneficiary there. But he's a physical runner. It's going to be a really good one-two combination because you've got Kennedy Brooks there already, obviously. It's a really good one-two combination. But I'll tell you something else. I think, and I had someone else tell me this too, sort of a personnel guy in the SEC, I think he was very underutilized as a receiver at Tennessee. Uh, Partly because that's just not what they wanted him to do. That's not what they were asking him to do. I think there's a misconception that maybe he's more a straight runner. He's going to give you a physical presence, but he's not someone that you're going to probably throw the ball to a whole lot. No, he can be. I fully believe he can be that. Probably a lot more underneath stuff. He's not going to stretch the middle of the field vertically, but Eric Gray can be a really effective sort of in that manner, a dual threat talent at the running back position. I'm not telling you he's the next Najee Harris, but I'm telling you he can do some of the things that Harris could do and should have been asked to do that at Tennessee a lot more. Also, Wanya Morris, headed from Knoxville to uh, Sooner Country there out in Norman. He was a freshman All-American in 2019. COVID got in the way of a lot of guys in 2020. Wanya Morris was one of them. And so, like, you didn't quite get what you thought you'd get out of him. This is a guy who is an NFL type. He's a plug-and-play type as an offensive tackle. He is an immediate contributor. So those two guys, Gray and Wanya Morris, are immediate impact players that, again, just because of circumstances outside of Oklahoma's control, they benefited from. That's the way the transfer portal is going to work every year. Someone's going to be a big winner that they themselves didn't even know they'd be in position for six months earlier. And last but not least, maybe even most, Tyreek Stevenson. From a team in Georgia that has so many question marks at corner right now, the one commodity proven that they would have had at corner said, I want to go back home too. This is a former five-star guy. This is a guy with NFL physical pedigree and potential. And he's also in a college football contract year. Uh, This is the year. This is the year a lot of people at Georgia had circled to think Tyreek Stevenson was going to pop this year for them if he was on campus in Athens. Well, now he transfers. He's got his reasons. Like There are whispers. I don't know. Whatever the case is. It's not anything necessarily um, off the field related. There's no, hidden, there's no hidden story there that you need to know about that's going to impact his play on the field. He's a good player. He has not reached his physical potential or his ceiling as a player. He is uh, a thoroughbred of an athlete. I mean, he's an incredible athlete. And he goes now into a situation where he's headed into a program that playing time is going to be available for him. And secondly, it's a place where a lot of people are trying to feel themselves out. Like you saw Miami on the field with Clemson this past year. They wondered whether they belonged. Well, if you wonder, you don't belong. Tyreek Stevenson is the kind of athlete. You need more than him. But Tyreek Stevenson is the kind of athlete that when he walks onto the field, he looks like the Clemson guys look. You got to get a whole bunch of those guys. So baby steps, obviously. But those are some of the impact transfers to watch this year. And also keep in mind, a guy like Henry Toa Toa is still in the portal. We've got big time guys still in the portal that have to kind of feel things out. You know, there's different circumstances for different guys. And also we have the post spring period. And that's how I want to wrap it up. All the names I just mentioned, I think Some of us have been lulled into a false sense of thinking this thing's over. We've probably only seen the first wave of what will eventually perennially be known as two phases of transfer portal madness. One of them pre-spring, and then one of them post-spring, when guys see where they fall in the depth chart, and then they decide whether they want to move on. So keep an eye on that. Let's wrap it up tonight with the Tennessee Mood Tracker. The Tennessee Mood Tracker is special to me because i got a very special place in my heart for the Tennessee fan base. 
their loyalty through mountains and mountains of adversity over the past decade has been spectacular to witness. Not spectacular in the sense that it's been fun. It's just been incredible to watch. There was a conversation. I remember when I first got here, which was in January, late January of last year, we were talking in the 24-7 office just across the way here, which is a ghost town now, but I was talking with uh, Luke Stampini, who works here, and I was talking about LSU in 2019. I was looking at some traffic reports and how the increase on the LSU site spiked, obviously because of what happened in 2019. And we were just kind of saying, what could be the next fan base? What could be the next just monster program that's waiting to, um, to spike like that from a traffic standpoint? It's Tennessee. It's obviously Tennessee. Like Tennessee's been a sleeping dragon, it seems like, 100 years now. And so I always, I just sit here and wait. And I wait, and I wait. And you guys wait, and you wait, and you wait. The reward for that patience, here's where it gets tough to talk about, is um, an NCAA cloud and being asked to invest more patience. Is it fair? No, it's not. Is it reality? Yeah, it is. So I go over to the Tennessee message board over on Vols 24-7 today, and I said, hey, guys. I kind of sheepishly came in. I said, hey, guys, um, it's that time. It's mood tracker time. One word or phrase. Give me your mood towards Tennessee football right now. So here's what we got. I want you to notice what you don't hear. Hyped spelled H-U-E-P-E-D, a play on the last name of Josh Heupel. Uh, proud, I'll get back to that in a second. Ready, a lot of cautious optimism, obviously. Wait and see, punch drunk, jaded, cleaned out, meaning that the flush button has been hit. and It's just start over yet again up there. But I want to circle back to that proud. Saw a couple of those. The pride is in the idea right now that everyone associated with Tennessee football wants to be at Tennessee. No one's stuck around there because of the fringe benefits that you get for being on the Tennessee roster right now or being a coach at Tennessee. It's bare bones there right now. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So you can rest assured and bet your bottom dollar, anybody there wants to be there. That's a source of pride, obviously. But then the second part is you got you got to either be one of two things right now. In college football, you got to be good or you at least got to be fun to watch. Tennessee was bad and boring under Jeremy Pruitt. That's just a terrible combination. And yet still, everyone perseveres. Fan base is still there. They, they, they keep running. You feel like you just ran a marathon, and you're pouring sweat, and the meter says you just went 26.2 miles or however long that is, but then you look down, and you were on a treadmill the entire time. You haven't gone a foot further than you were before you started. And so you're bent over, hands on knees, and you're <laughs> and then you look up, and then you say, all right, well, we've come this far. Let's just keep going. But remember when I told you, notice what you didn't hear. Out of all these, these moods that I was given from Tennessee fans, no one said they were done, which a lot of you probably would be. Like if you've watched Tennessee voyeuristically, if you've watched from a distance, I guarantee you at some point you've said, how do these people put up with this? Like how do they continue year after year after year to underachieve relative to the potential of this program? And the answer is loyalty. Uh, that's the reason why I talk about Tennessee a lot on this show. It's because we get a lot of viewers when I talk about Tennessee. That's loyalty. They're not good right now. They're, there's a difference. When you talk about Alabama, you talk about Ohio State, you're going to get a certain portion of folks who watch those videos just because they're good and they matter and they're nationally relevant. Tennessee is none of those right now. And yet the fan base is still there, which obviously leads someone like me to ask, hmm, what would it be like if they were good? It's been a generation, by the way. I'm talking national relevance, not going nine and four. National relevance at Tennessee is something in, con in concept form that's so old, if you're about to you know, be a recruit in high school, you don't remember it. 
I mean, 2000, mid-2000s, that's the last time Tennessee would have really been nationally relevant. Well, it's 2021 right now. Like, if you're about to be a senior in high school, what were you? You were, you were two years old, three years old at the time that Tennessee was last nationally relevant, and still, they're there. And so, what did they need to nail right now? Well, what they needed to nail was the hire, but not the head coaching hire. Like that, we can get around to in just a second. They had to nail the athletic director hire. So there's a lot of excitement at the very least that they nailed the athletic director hire in Danny White. Because here's what hasn't been wrong at Tennessee. They haven't had bad luck. It hasn't been a recruiting issue. Tennessee's problems have been poor hires. And they've been poor hires made by ill-equipped athletic directors and people around that athletic department that really, as it turns out, did not know how to hire properly. And so I know right now it's kind of in vogue to look at Josh Heupel and to cast your own opinions on him. You'll notice there's been a little absence of that on this show. It's been intentional. I haven't given a grade on the hire. I haven't told you uh, three years they're looking for another head coach there. Even if I feel that way, who cares? Because if I'm a Tennessee fan, here's how I'm looking at it. I've watched us win the press conference enough. Like I've watched guys step to the podium and say all the right things. I've watched all the energy. I've watched all the sprinkles, and yet the icing and then the cake is just absent. I've seen all that. So let's get a guy in here that seems boring, a little ho-hum when it comes to the press release we put out. Maybe he wins, though. Like Maybe that's the guy. I'm going to reserve judgment, and I'm going to watch and see what transpires on the field. Then we got this whole NCAA thing behind us. But man, they've had a hiring problem. And so maybe Josh Heupel is the right guy. But even if he's not the right guy, even if we're having to reset this button again two or three years down the road, even if the worst were to happen from the NCAA point of view, You've got to build the foundation. You cannot be adding two or three stories onto the house and the foundation is just sand. We've got to be able to make good hires. And that's why I'm so excited about Danny White being in there. There are no sure things in this world. But Danny White as an athletic director is about as close to it as we get. Then we can start extending. Then we can start doing what the other programs do and actually making quality hires. Then those quality hires can build a solid foundation. Then we can get a legitimate recruiting plan in place and realize we don't have to own the state of Tennessee. We can go to Atlanta. We can go to Charlotte. We can go to Memphis, which is in Tennessee. Don't know if you knew that. We can go around. We don't have to be landlocked into the borders of our state. We just got to get the right guy in place. And so that's what you hope you've done there. But you know what? Like, it's not going to play itself out in year one. It's not going to play itself out probably in year two. We're looking at the composite right now, and, and Jesse's showing you a lot of things that scream graphically the same message. It's going to take a little while. Wish I had other news. I don't, but this is a mood tracker segment. And as long as there's still a little optimism in the mood of Tennessee fans, then they're still the same folks that I've come to know them as, which is fiercely loyal. Maybe you could argue to a fault over the last decade, but fiercely loyal. So that's the Tennessee Mood Tracker. And that's our show for tonight. Remember, right as we go off the air here, producer Jordan on the podcast side of things will be sending out a notification if we selected your name in the lottery for tomorrow night's Late Kick Show Owners Association Zoom special. You will get notified, and then you'll have 24 hours to get your affairs in order before you need to clear your schedule for tomorrow night. That will be up on the channel Wednesday night. It will be in the podcast feed Wednesday at some point. So look forward to that. Look forward to interacting with you guys and seeing some of your beautiful faces, by the way. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at LateKickJosh for all the things that we can't get to on the show. And uh, do me a favor and like the video if you haven't already on your way out. For Director Emeritus Colin on the Nashville side of things, Jesse and company on the Connecticut side of things, thank you so much for letting us do what we get to do, believe it or not, for a living here. I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your week. We'll see you next time. God bless.